So the the thing that it does for us is it affects how many people die. Um, it doesn't affect how many people get it. That's that's it, well, it potentially can affect it. Like right now, the projection is forty to seventy percent of the the population is going to get COVID nineteen in the United States. So the thing about um, how many of those people get it is is how rapidly it spreads um, and how readily it spreads. So if you can keep it from spreading rapidly, potentially, you can actually keep it down at that 40% range. I want to take a quick time out to give you guys a personal update. Many of you know I've been working on my dream of becoming a sci-fi author. Well, now I've got a couple sci-fi books and techno thrillers coming out soon. Do you want to help me and join my advanced beta reader team and get free or deeply discounted copies of my upcoming books to review and help me improve the stories? If you're a fan of Michael Crichton, Daniel Suarez, A Good Dystopian, or Epic Fantasy, you'll love my writing. If you join and share your feedback, it would mean the world for me in my writing career. Seriously, I'd really appreciate it. If you visit mattward.io slash book and enter your details, then you'll be notified and occasionally selected to pre-read some of my books before everyone else. Share your thoughts, work directly with me to help me make the story better, and much more. I want to give you guys an epic thanks for listening to the podcast, especially for folks interested in the books. And again, if you want to get my books before they come out before anyone and help me make this writing career a success, please visit mattward.io slash book to join and get your free early copies. Want to build a business that changes the world for the better and makes serious money in the process? I believe in the ability of entrepreneurs and innovators to change the world for the better. And that's why I built this podcast. I've put together a free guide for founders fighting to change the world and create long-term, sustainable, profitable businesses. You can grab that for free at mattward.io mission. If you're building a business designed to leave an impact on the world, it pays to be prepared. And if you want to go further faster, I also work one-on-one with impact-oriented founders and CEOs looking to 10x results without working harder. You can do it. It comes down to efficiency, mindset, and much more. You can find out more and apply at mattward.io coaching. And now let's get on with this awesome episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. As many of you may have known, I've been doing a lot more sci-fi writing lately and focusing on my author career. Well, today I've got somebody who is doing that and doing a great job of it as a futurist as well. Mary Robinette Cowell on the program. She's a Nebula and Hugo award-winning science fiction and fantasy author, puppeteer, and podcaster. Her book, The Calculating Stars, The Lady Astronaut Novel, was nominated for Hugo in 2019. And she's also the president of the Science Fiction Writers of America and very involved in STEM and diversity in education broadly. On her podcast, Writing Excuses, she educates other authors on the ins and outs, the craft of authorship, so to speak. And she's written a fair bit of speculative fiction in her day. In today's episode, we discuss how COVID-19 will affect the future of education, the second order effects of corona on the economy as a whole and what it means for us, an interesting comparison between polio, the Spanish flu, and the COVID outbreak of today. Interestingly, she'd already been writing a book about it, and we take a real in-depth dive into what that could mean and what it could look like going forward. Why Donald Trump is absolutely the worst person to have at the helm of the U.S. government going through a crisis like this. How we can prepare for a post-automation future. And how sci-fi helps us also build a better world for all of us. This one's fun. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Without further ado, I give you Mary Robinette Cowell. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hey guys, welcome to The Disruptors, the show where we talk about big picture ideas. And today, we're hidden in our houses doing just that. We've got a, the middle of a dystopia, so to speak. Mary Robinette Cowell on the program, fellow sci-fi author, podcaster, and all-around interesting person. Thanks for coming today, happy Mary to, Robinette. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's It's nice to talk to someone during the pandemic that isn't trapped in the same walls as I am. As I know, it's, it's, I, we kind of have to go there. So I think we do. <laughs> we, we have to go, we especially have to go there because I read a bit of dystopian sci-fi. Yeah. So let, let me, let me be super selfish with this actually. Sure thing. 
I my book is scheduled to come out in nine days. Oh Would no! Would you just launch it? And it's it's a post plague. It's a post-plague dystopia. Wow. Humanities diverged. Would you just launch it now and roll with it? Or would you wait the nine days? I would, what would wait. What would you do as an author? I would wait the nine days, uh, mostly because the news cycle is so crunched right now mm-hmm. that I don't think any books are getting noticed in the moment. But uh, but in nine days, yeah, people will notice. Yeah. And everyone's stuck at their home and at home, too. You got to do something. It's yeah. either reading or Netflix, right? Yeah, exactly. How do you how do you think about what's going on now? So you're a sci-fi author. You work on either predicting, creating, or some in some way forecasting the future. How do you think about what's happening now and how that affects where we're headed? So the thing that happens with me is that I tend to build my science fiction by looking at the past. Frequently, I am writing science fiction or fantasy that is historically based. Uh, the to, to plug my own novel. Uh, the Relentless Moon that is coming out um, in July of this year has a polio. It's set during the polio epidemics. So I did a ton of reading about what that was like and the way society just came to a halt in very similar ways to what's happening now. So for me, what I tend to do is uh, I look at the patterns of things, um, how people respond um, how different communities respond. So like there's, there's multiple different ways that you can respond to something like this. Like in Italy, people are responding to the pandemic by going to the, to the windows and uh, singing together. And then in the afternoon, in, at the, the church bells toll at, I think it's 6 p.m. And everyone applauds simultaneously, collectively out their windows so that the doctors and nurses and medical staff can hear their appreciation for them. That's beautiful, beautiful coming together. In the United States, we have people who are hoarding hand sanitizer. We have people, uh, the, the sale of guns and ammo is significantly up. It's a very different way of responding to, to the, the pandemic. And, you know, obviously in both populations, you're going to have someone who does the exact opposite. In Italy, I'm certain that there's someone who is hoarding hand sanitizer. And in the US, there are absolutely acts of beautiful, beautiful kindness and generosity. But you can, looking at like the, the patterns of the cultures, then when I'm building a science fictional world, it helps me extrapolate and decide kind of which model of my is going to be the uh, the main thrust of a culture. And then, and then I get to bring in an outlier who uh, who can disrupt things okay so th- this is perfect i i didn't know the polio part so polio walk me through what happened then and how you see the similarities to today okay so polio our idea of polio now is this horrible huge epic plague that that was everywhere and, and constant the interesting thing about polio is that 95% of the people who got it were asymptomatic, right? C- but, but contagious. And terrifying. That's just absolutely terrifying. Yes. Contagious. Uh, you know, they might get a, even if they weren't like completely asymptomatic, they, they would get a cold. They would get a mild cold. They might think that they had the flu, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? And, uh, and then within that, you had a smaller population that would have symptomatic diseases. And within that, I think it was like uh, 5% of the people would, would actually get what we think of as, as polio. And then within that, there's a smaller percentage that would, would actually die. Uh, the thing was, though, there were three different strains of polio. One of them was like fairly, as such things go, mild. It was super unpleasant when you had it, but you would recover. Uh, another one was somewhat more unpleasant. Uh, and then the third one, you would get it, and in the morning you would be walking and you would be fine and you would be dead by the end of the day. It's like the perfect death trap because you also don't see it coming. Correct. And because <laughs> it was spread through uh, community contact, and it took them a long time to figure out even wh- how it spread. So frequently, an entire family would go simultaneously. So it was like it was really, really super bad, and uh, and and the. The search for the vaccine was the problem. The, the difference that we have between where we are now and where the, they were with the polio epidemics 
is that we know that there will be a vaccine in in 18 months. The things that we don't know is whether or not COVID-19 is going to mutate the way the flu does so that we get a different COVID uh, outbreak every year, the same way you get flu variations every year. We don't know if that's the way this is going to play out. So we think that we're going to wait out these months and then be okay, but we aren't certain. The other thing that's very instructive from looking at the polio epidemics is that one of the things that happened with it was the people who recovered continued to need long-term care. The early reports about uh, the fact that they are seeing lung scarring, even in people who are asymptomatic with COVID-19. So the the report that I read is that in 60% of the asymptomatic cases, they saw lung scarring in one of the lungs. Holy shit. Right? Yeah. No, it's it's legitimately terrifying. Where, where did you see that? Because I haven't seen that yet. Uh, I have a friend who's an epidemiologist. I can send you the link to the one that I read, uh, but I've, I've seen it reported now in, in one or two other places. And it, it, it's... Um, that's, worse than, that's worse than anything I've heard so far in terms of kill rates, in terms of probabilities. That's, that's far and away the worst thing I've heard. That it is, it is legitimately, but, but remember, they've got the scarring, but they, they still don't show any symptoms. So it's not having an immediate effect on them. We just, we just see that there is scarring. The thing that we don't know is how that is going to look down the line, what the population of people who get COVID-19 are going to look like in one, two, five, ten years. We don't know if this is going to have a long-term impact. And that's the place that that I start thinking about uh, all of the, the, the consequences that, that came from the polio epidemics, that it wasn't just people are sick and that's bad. Um, it was people are sick and there are long-term consequences. So we know that there, people are sick and there are economic disruptions, which happened with the, um, like in, in the polio epidemics, people shut down, uh, no theaters, uh, no public swimming pools. The high time for polio was in the summer. So in the summer, just towns shut down. They had quarantines where you were not allowed to enter the town without being tested. They were uh, specifically targeting uh, particular populations of people that they thought were more prominent carriers of polio. They were also saying, well, these other populations uh, don't, uh, don't get it as much, so let's spend our resources. You know, th- so they were starting to divide resources by, um, by ethnicity. It was like, it was really, it was, I mean, it was the 50s, so. Uh, uh, Dystopian, but efficient. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say unsurprising. But these are the kinds of things that happen is that in the absence of a person that you can blame, you begin to, to fear populations. Uh, you begin to other everyone who isn't you. So right now... Oh, so the, it wasn't based off of data. This was based off of, oh, it's, it's, the, it's the Chinese. Oh, it's the Russians. Exactly. Right yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's the Italians. Yeah. The Italians were the big culprits in New York because one of the first places that it hit was in an Italian neighborhood. And so then people said, well, the Italians, obviously. So then in other parts of the country, Italians were discriminated against. But then also because it, it later turned out that the reason that polio was predominantly hitting white affluent families was because poorer families, uh, black families, Mexican families, they were getting polio in infancy uh, when it was less lethal to them. And and so so they already had a, a high number of people who um, had immunity to it. By the time they they hit the the, the danger range, um, but they didn't know that at the time. So what they were doing was like, well, we have to take care of the poor white, not the poor white people. We have to take care of these white people who are getting it the most. And I'm certain that it had nothing to do with racism at all. <sighs> anyway, we, all, we always find the convenient truth. It doesn't matter yeah. religion, race, something, something yeah. to have a difference. But the the thing the thing is that. To, to bear in mind when looking at the, the way we're responding right now, it's, it's wonderful that people are uh, self-isolating uh, or self-quarantining, that they're, they're doing the social distancing. Looking at what that's going to do to the fabric of society 
on the other side of the epidemic. That's the thing that's interesting. Like one of the things that people suggest is that you form a, a pod, you know, that, that you and your family quarantine, self-quarantine for 14 days, uh, no, no outside contact at all. Then you know you're well, right? Because you've gotten outside the incubation period. And if you've got another, if you've got friends who've done the same thing, then they know that they're well. So then you can socialize with them. Build a little commune. Right. So you can, so the, the thing is like in the, uh, the unhappy dystopian version of this, what you have are uh, pods of people that refuse to have contact with outside world on the other side, or, or like the, the distrust of, but we don't know if they're clean and safe comes in. Um, you want to you want to hear the other? I'm rambling a lot at this point, but do you want to hear yeah, the but other? Yeah, it's, it's value. It's valuable rambling. Oh, good, good. Here's here's the other uh, the other scenario that has gone through my narrative brain. Uh, the difference in the way conservative media has portrayed the pandemic, oh, and the liberal media has portrayed the pandemic, could lead to a storyline in which this has a disproportionate effect on conser- the conservative population. Which is also significantly older and more likely to die based off of the stats we've seen. Right. So there, that is a potential narrative storyline and certainly something that I would absolutely explore if I were writing fiction. I, I don't even think that's fiction at this point. From what, from what I'm hearing, that's, that's pretty darn accurate. Fox News might be cutting down its, uh, its viewership base, but that's, um, that's, that's neither here nor there necessarily. So taking it back a little bit, the the isolation thing makes sense and it doesn't. Like I know people who are thinking, okay, in two weeks everything's going to be fine. Yeah, no. And to know in two in two weeks everything's going to be worse, effed worse than it is now. I don't see how I don't see how the social distancing, short of flattening the curve in terms of hospitals being ready is going to be that valuable because we're all going to be exposed. The, there's just not a way around it. So the, the thing that it does for us is it affects how many people die. Um, it doesn't affect how many people get it. That's, that's it, well, it potentially can affect it. Like right now the projection is 40 to 70% of the, the population is going to get COVID-19 in the United States. So the thing about... Um, how many of those people get it is is how rapidly it spreads um, and how readily it spreads. So if you can keep it from spreading rapidly, potentially, you can actually keep it down at that 40% range uh, because there are fewer people being unknowingly exposed. I mean, I shouldn't say unknowingly. We're, no one is being... <laughs> Come here, let's get a kiss. Yeah. I, I guess hospital workers are being knowing, or mm-hmm. knowingly being exposed. But it's not going to be the, I have no idea where this came from thing that we're having right now. So potentially you can keep it down in the 40% range. What it affects is the number of people who die. Because using an example that Tobias Bakel put together as a video for his small town of Bluffton, Ohio. He's also a science fiction writer. He worked with um, an epidemiologist who has been telling people that this was coming since he saw COVID-19 reports coming out of China. Bluffton, Ohio, uh, in the uh, best case scenario with the 40%, 40 of, of the population gets it, mean that they would have, I believe, 135 people who require hospitalization. They have 25 hospital beds. Got to space it out. Otherwise, people are, you're going Italy in the streets and people are dying. That's why Italy's death rate is so high. Correct. Also because they're old and smoke a lot. Apparently. Well, yeah, I mean. But it's, it's also killing young people. I mean, the, there's a higher percentage, but uh, it, it's, there, there are young people who are dying too. So, so that's why the social distancing is valuable, to spread it out so that we don't cause the hospital system to collapse. That's when we get more deaths. We don't reduce the number of people who get it. We get, reduce the number of people who die from it. Oh, no. That, that, okay. That's what, I was, that's what I knew. That I was wondering if there was something else just on, in addition. because. The spreading it out, eventually that has to come to a grinding halt because you can only kind of delay the inevitable for so long before bigger problems emerge. Well, um, we are in a very fortunate time. Like with the, the polio epidemic, 
you know, they didn't have the internet, right? So the way they continued school was that kids would get materials mailed to them at home. They would get radio broadcasts of lessons, but a lot of it was just fortunate, you know, it happened during the summer. So kids stayed at home and, and moms, uh, you know, didn't generally work outside of the home at that point. But all of the social activities, all the, the theaters, the restaurants, they, they saw the same hit that we, re, that we see now. The, so, you know, and, and then they, and then they bounced back. So the, the question for, for me is, is like not, you know, it causes other problems. It's, it's that we, I think the, the fabric of society is going to fundamentally shift. A lot of people will be comfortable with, with video conferencing in ways that they were not or were resistant to beforehand. And higher education is just going to get killed because they're going to realize how expensive it is for not a lot of value. Well, higher education, I think, will shift their model that they'll realize that they don't need the infrastructure or the other side of this is that we will realize that uh, how important in-person communication is and that there will be, uh, you know, another thing that we often also see with, with this kind of cycle or, or pattern is the, uh, the pushback that one of the things that could happen when we come out of it is that people then uh, are like, I am going to do all of the traveling I can now. Overcorrect. Yes. And it's hard to tell. And, and different people react in different ways. I would agree. I think the scariest thing is how bad off a lot of people in the US are economically <laughs> yep. in terms of living paycheck to paycheck, more or less without health care, except through their employer. And probably having debt because debt's a cool thing, right? Yeah. I mean, that is another thing that I was looking at when I was watching the the bills that the the Senate and the House are attempting to pass to get relief to the American to the American population. It's like, you know, we could come out of this way better off or completely destroyed. Yeah. Uh, either is either is possible, but it 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 all depends on kind of uh who is the uh, who is pushing it. Like You you can you can say it. It's all good. No, it's it, it. This is really the kind of thing that that does absolutely depend on who is in charge. It's who's setting the tone at the top. And this is this is not. It's easy to discuss it in political, you know, as as I'm making a political statement about today's thing. But from a as a storytelling point of view, and, and again, looking at patterns and the way things shape, the way we respond to a crisis and the tone set by someone at the the head of the of the crisis that affects the way. America responds. Again, looking at polio, the fact that that we had a president with polio absolutely affected the amount of funding that got funneled into polio research. Had that that is why that happened. And that in turn had an effect on uh, not just the immunization but also the research into vaccines in just in general, uh, other aspects aspects of healthcare and childcare. There are a ton of things that ripple effects from just having a president with polio who put a priority on making sure the American population was taken care of. They had polio wards. You didn't have to, if you got polio, you didn't have to pay anything. They just put you in a polio ward and they took care of you. The American, uh, you know, America took care of you. So that's a thing that can happen. You can also have someone who who goes the other direction and says, uh, you know, this is, you know, capitalism will solve this. You need to, you know, a point of sales is the way to go. Just acquire your own, uh, own respirators. It's going to work best individually instead of trying to do it as a group effort. Uh, so that, that can splinter things and cause a lot of people to, to duplicate effort. And it, it is entirely, the difference is entirely in who is in command. And the tone that they set. Which is a terrifying proposition given what's been happening. I have very strong feelings about that. Like, um, I mean, they, complete, they completely fucked up. They, yeah, absolutely. And uh, tried, tried to hide it. Yeah, yeah. Tried to hide it and, and, and kept, kept thinking that they could, I mean, you, you cannot, you cannot out macho a microorganism. Yeah, science, science is real, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, strange thing, uh, the CDC and the 700 jobs, they, they were doing work. They, and uh, 
I'm, I even heard the CDC was getting pushed to not reveal quite yeah. a lot of facts. And uh, some there was some tweet about the the new strain of COVD, which the guy tweeted it out. Wasn't supposed to. Otherwise, we would have no idea. Yeah. It's really hard because I don't – there's so many – there's so many possible good things that can come out of this. Mm -hmm. We can get a universal health care. We can reduce the need on education. We can reduce the need on travel, have more outside the work, work opportunities. Yeah. But that's the flip side, assuming that we get through it without things going to, to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is. This is like. The, the other thing. I'm sorry. I, I keep. I keep thinking about all of the ways that this can be horrible because the other thing that I looked at was the flu. So my grandmother was born in 1905. She lived to be 109. She remembers. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I scored in the genetic department there. But she she remembered the the Spanish flu outbreak. And we we talked about it and she says, you know, she just remembers that like everybody knew somebody who had died from it. And this is more virulent. Everybody who is listening to this will know someone who has who dies from COVID nineteen. Virulent being trans transmission. Death. Death. Oh, death. Okay. It had a COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen is is uh, has a higher death rate than than the flu. We're floating at around two percent. It, it's the numbers seem so high and so low depending on where, like. I heard Italy is around 4%, and they're theorizing a big part of that is it's the third oldest country in the world. There's quite a bit of smoking. Both of those two massively contribute. And then there's essentially zero hospital beds because yeah. it's th it's third world medical. Yeah. So 2%, uh, the flu is 0.9. And that's a terrible... And this is more contagious than the flu. It's almost yeah. double. Yeah. So this is more contagious and uh, basically 10 times deadlier than that flu, even in the best case scenarios, than that. So, what, do you say point nine? I think it's point nine. I may. I uh, my that, math that would be double. That would be about double then. Uh, okay, I have my math wrong. Uh, the mm. and and so we'll just all remember that I'm a writer. No uh, worries. It's it's more deadly. And yes, when we're writing, we can occasionally make things up. And I think I think that's super valuable just to be able to have conversations like this where we are making things up on the fly. But yeah. with a thought process of different directions things could go. Because people need to have all the options laid before them. If the if the world is dystopia, then you build towards that dystopia because you haven't seen a better yeah. vision for it. And vice you also need the guardrails of dystopia right. to avoid going that direction. That is so true. What direct speaking of direction, what direction would you take this podcast right now? Um I don't know. You had some different uh different questions for me and uh yeah, let's get wanna, a happy picture. What technology or trend are you most excited about today and why? Let's have a little bit of happiness here. So things that I am happy about. Uh I'm I'm super happy about video conferencing. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Zoom. Yay. Um, yeah, super wish I had stock in that. Uh, or, or antiseptics as well. Not antiseptics, uh, antibiotics. Not uh, antibiotics, whatever those little nasty hand cream things are. Oh, uh, hand sanitizers. Cannot, yeah. Yeah. Eh, I'm not... Like, soap and water actually does the same job. It's just hand sanitizers are easier to carry around with you. But in, things that, in terms of things that actually like make me happy uh, technology-wise... The things, things like this. Um, I love being able to talk to my phone and have it understand me. I love that a lot. I love a lot of the different medical advances that are coming out. Things like uh, uh, pumps for medication that uh, can be implanted in a patient so they don't have to do uh, constant, uh, you know, keep a, a, a rigorous schedule that they can just keep a pump. And the way those are miniaturizing, um, battery life makes me very happy. <laughs> the way it's getting longer, it's super great. Yeah, those are things that I'm excited about. Yeah, there's a lot of good happening in the world. We've talked a bit about the bad. We can we can avoid the flip side of that question because we've kind of already covered that at this point. <laughs> where do you where do you see us headed? So you're 
quite into the publishing space, both as a self-publisher with a podcast and then your career as an author. Where do you Mm -hmm. see us headed when it comes to media? So interesting question that. What I think is that everybody is going to like that we're everyone will be hybrid that will be will be doing both uh depending on story and audience and project and you know it it'll and, and mood like I don't self publish my fiction um I have uh and what I discovered from that process is that fundamentally I'm lazy um or rather uh, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I've spent most of my my entire career as a freelancer has been trying to turn down the gigs that I don't want to do. And I don't enjoy the publishing side of it. I like the writing side. So so it's not so much that I'm lazy as it's just, it's not work that I want to be doing. And I admire the heck out of people who do. But knowing that that is an option means that, you know, when I do have something that I, that it's like, this is for a small audience and I, I have another way to put it out. That, that those are there are options there. I, as an audiobook narrator, I will tell you that the thing that I have been seeing is a trend towards first person uh, fiction, which I think is because as audiobooks are on the rise and they are the fastest growing, they're one of the fastest growing segments right now. Uh, that first person narration plays better in audio. You just get more inside the you get more inside the character's head. You feel it. It's. I think it's the. For me, it's less that it's uh, that we we get more inside the character's head, and more that we are the um, the cognitive jump between being told a story by someone and being told a story about someone uh, is different. That it's it's much easier to. Uh, to relate and to believe that the person who is speaking to you is the character and and connect to them, and it it has less to do with what's than, than you know being inside their head because like I can put the same amounts of emotion down on the page either way. It's just that one of them fits with the way we are naturally already engaging with information. And if that narrator is a robot AI, what are your thoughts on? the progression of where we're headed in that direction. Do you think we'll get there soon? Yeah, I do. Actually, I think it's something that authors and uh, and the actors union actually have to be really, uh, really aware of. The, the thing, the, the, the piece of it that still, I think, uh, for a while, um, the actor will have is the interpretation of the text. But I think even that is going to eventually go away. So the, like, we are already at a point, it's like a, a two years away at most, and, and not even that far. Uh, but we're, we're already at a point where you can take a piece of text and um, have have it read as if a particular person was reading it. Like the transparency between uh, this is a, a computer-generated voice and a human-generated voice, it, that, that line is, is so, so thin for an isolated piece of text. So the, the place that a narrator comes in is for text that is um, ambiguous uh, where you are needing to bring things into it that you're you're getting context from the the larger work, um, the acting side. You know what's my character's motivation? All of the stuff that's not actually on the page, but that you as a reader extrapolate from what's on the page. Does that make sense? Yeah, including emotion. Exactly, emotion is the hardest thing to fake. Exactly. So. That's the piece that I think that actors will, uh, that, that creativity of expression and the collaboration with the author is the piece that I think will remain the province of authors. Having said that, I also imagine a future in which one of the things that happens is that the technology gets good enough. Um, and as again, I, we're, we're pretty much there. Uh, the technology gets good enough that with an engineer, that you have the AI read it, and then an engineer goes back in and adjusts it to have the uh, the emotional take that they want to have. Um, 
that's a thing that I think is very likely to happen. Um, I also think having things that are read by a single narrator and then adjusted to make it sound like it's a multi-voice cast is something that is not that far away. It's it's going to depend on, um, you know, we'll, it'll be in the Uncanny Valley for a little bit, and then uh, and then we're going to have Princess Leia, but in audiobook. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. You see it already with the deep fakes, where yeah, quite a bit of problems with those, and we're we're only going further and further in that direction. I think at least when it comes to AI created content, one thing that gives me hope, at least for humanity for a while, is. Netflix quality has gone down and down and down. I'm not sure if anyone else has noticed it, but they went from pretty high pretty high ratings in terms of what they were putting out to now they're kind of like a a C plus on average at best, like a, a six and a half on IMDB. And it's because they have a formula and they nail out, crank out formulaic pieces of content, whether that be movies or TV series. And formulaic is okay, but it's it's just okay. And getting beyond that, I think, is where that, that creativity and inspiration needs to come from. That, at least for the moment, machines aren't even close on. Yeah, it, it's it's about uh, taste, you know? There's a, there's a thing that we, that, that I talk about when I'm uh, teaching writing that I, I, comes out of my puppetry background, which is when we talk about voice um, or style, so with a style of puppetry that you've got three different things that you're talking about. You've got the mechanical style, the aesthetic style, and the personal style. Um, and it's the same thing with the voice of a writer um, or the, the, the vision of a filmmaker. It's the mechanical, the aesthetic, and the personal. So with puppet, it's really easy to see. Mechanical, like what kind of puppet are you using? Is that a Muppet? Like a, a moving mouth thing? Or is that a, uh, is that a marionette? With uh, with writing, it's like, you know, are you writing third person or are you writing first person? You're writing for YA, you're writing for middle grade, you're writing for adults. Like, what's the mechanical style? Then the um, then you've got the aesthetic, which is uh, with the puppets. Again, you know, does it look like a Muppet? Does it look like it's hand carved out of the Appalachians? What, what does that puppet look like? That's the aesthetic. And with the writing, it's like, what does it sound like? Does it sound like Jane Austen? Does it sound like someone from the Bronx? What does it sound like? And the personal style, if you take the same puppet and you hand it to two different puppeteers, it will look like a different character, which is why when Jim Henson died uh, and Kermit the Frog went from Jim to Steve Whitmire, everybody freaked out because even though he was a perfect mechanical and aesthetic match because it was the same puppet, the, the personal style was different. It was just like subtly wrong. And that's not... That that what that comes down to is the the taste of the puppeteer, the the tiny tiny idiosyncrasies that uh, that make up his choices. Jim Henson was uh, an experimental filmmaker. Steve Whitmire was a linear storyteller. They're going to have different make different choices, and the same thing when you're looking at content and what what a human brings to it. It's those tiny idiosyncrasies that are difficult to quantify. That 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 are unpredictable and, and shift within the person on a day-by-day -day or hour-by-hour -hour basis. So those are the things that, that you're right, are going to be hard to replicate with computers. Will we hit the point where that, that they are replicable? Probably, honestly. How perfectly that will work? Eh, who knows? How desirable that will be? How interested we'll be in that? Don't know. But... I don't think that it's, I think you're right that it's the last thing that will be uh, replicated, but I, I also don't think that it is impossible to fake it eventually. The question, yeah, the question is, will it be the last thing to be replicated or will it be the last thing that we do? <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. It's, yeah. not, it's one that's been explored all the time in sci-fi. Exactly. There's, pl there's plenty of tropes. We all know about the AI that comes to kill us. Merging yeah. with AI, those are basically the two. Or we can go backwards in civilization and go yeah. light mode. Yeah, there was a um, in uh, Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow. One of the characters, her job was to come in 
analyze what someone was doing and then uh, train a computer to do that thing. And, and that she, there were always, there were some jobs that she couldn't train the computer to do, but they were, but they were always some, some weird, weird. The kindergarten and, teacher. It was always it was some things like that, but uh, an intuitive, like this, an intuitive moment. And, and there was a moment when she was dealing with uh, a SETI researcher and she's like, yeah, I can totally convince the, teach the computer to do this. And then, then there was a moment of intuition where he happened to patch together his love for this one particular band with something that was happening in, in the SETI and had a realization. And she's like, I could never teach a computer to do that. I can't teach it to have experience outside of here, which is the piece that humans bring to it. It's, it's that cross-pollination. It's the spontaneity. And I think that that's the spice of life. For someone who is not super spontaneous, I can definitely tell when I'm more spontaneous, I'm more happy and more creative. Yeah. And also we're pattern-seeking creatures. And so sometimes the patterns that we seek uh, and, f you know, those, those patterns are there and they resonate with other people, but they are not patterns that are easy to explain or describe to someone else. And they're not necessarily good patterns. Let's find an AI that hires and makes everyone look the same. Yeah. We've certainly had those problems. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different cans of worms that we're, that we're opening up. But that's, that's the point of sci-fi. Now, if I, had a, if I had a personal recommendation for educators out there, hmm. it would be to get rid of some of the older classic English, English garbage books that you have to read in school and replace it with some sci-fi so that people are... A, still learning. They're still learning the ins and outs of writing and craft and such, but they're doing it in a way that expands their mind as, a as opposed to forcing them backwards. Right. And the thing about science fiction that it does so well is that it is, it is the genre that asks what if uh, and what are the consequences. I was on some think tank thing where they, you know, you you get brought in as a futurist instead of a science fiction writer because futurist sounds uh, much more official. Much more official, right? But someone was saying, oh, you know, no one has thought about what happens if if robots become sentient. And I'm like, um, hi, I can give you a reading list. Uh, uh, totally, a thing that we've thought about. No one's thought about what would it be like if we had to go to another planet, but in a ship where it was. Journey was so long, it took more than one generation of people to get there. What would that ship be called? What would that be like? And I'm like, um, it's called a generation ship. Uh, you literally just said the name as you were describing it. And uh, again, let me give you a reading list. It's like pretty much every thought problem they came up with. I was like, uh, yes, hi. Science fiction has thought about that. Uh, let me give you a reading list. Yeah, let's get rid of the old English and law books and have politicians be forced to read a little bit of sci-fi. Just give them a short story collection. There's this great uh, organization, Futurescapes, which partners with uh, the mayor's offices to create anthologies that look at a different problem of governance and uh, civil planning through the lens of science fiction as a way of doing practical thought experiments. Or not practical, but um, you know, narrative thought experiments. And uh, using science fiction as a way to, you know, to intentionally drive the future instead of the way we usually do it, which is accidentally drive the future. You know, like communicators are cool. Whoa, hey, we all have cell phones now. That was an accident, but trying to do that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, and the the thing is, there's so many risks in the future that we have to be at least a bit thoughtful of in terms of how and where and the direction we head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um. It's a crazy world we're moving towards. I want a bold contrarian 10-year prediction from you. Something you believe that most people around you wouldn't. It can be about anything. All right. So 10 years, specifically 10 years. Or within the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, so we are rising in, uh, in we, we swing between fascination with the artifice and fascination with the natural. We are rising into a fascination with the artifice right now. Uh, the uh, information of things, which means that in 10 years, we will probably be beginning to swing to an agrarian lifestyle, I believe, uh, that is especially after this, 
that we will be a largely decentralized society uh, connected via the internets, but most people will live agrarian, rural lives, uh, and then almost all the work will be done remotely, either through computers or they will, uh, they will, we will have significant increase in use of 3D printers and uh, also teleworking robotically. Jeez, 10 years? Yeah. That's I mean, quite a bold one. You asked oh. me for a bold contrarian statement. I like it. There you go. You got your next book. Yeah. I mean, we have all of the technology to do it now. What we haven't had is an economic reason to make it happen uh, or a social drive. And we have both of those right now in the, in the form of a pandemic. I agree. One thing I worry about is automation be, being the force of dystopia and that, at least in the US, we're very capitalist and libertarian in that once we automate away the jobs, we might as well if you can be cynical, but just let the people at the bottom die. That's kind of the way that politics is set up currently, unless we change it. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of the things that I look at is the Luddites, the actual Luddites, not not what people think of as Luddites, the actual Luddites, which were protesting the uh, disruption of lifestyle brought about by looms, not the not the not the uh, automation of weaving per se, but the disruption of lifestyle because it used to be something that you could do in the home as a full family thing and high skill. And it went from that to being something that you had to do in a location. It was very dangerous. It was low skill, low wages, and uh, no longer a full family thing. So you had to get health, childcare. And that's what they were actually protesting. But it was spun as a fear of progress. The thing is, when you look at what's happening with the coal workers and the steel workers, it's the exact same thing. It's a disruption of lifestyle. It's a disruption of identity. It's taking something that used to be a high-skilled job and turning it into something that isn't and, uh, and a devaluing of people. So, you know, I think automating things is great if you think about what it's doing to communities and you think about ways to make people still valued and to Take people, you know, find other skills that maintain a community that, that the skills that they have can transfer to. I think that there's still, I think that, that automation is not evil in and of itself. It's, it's the disruption and disregard for the, the people who were doing the automation, the, the work that is the problem. Definitely. And the just complete lack of foresight when, well, or intentional ignorance. Yeah. On the part of people at top. Yeah, they think, well, they'll find other jobs. It's like, where? Doing what? And, and finding other jobs involves moving, which is, again, disruption of lifestyle and community. To be fair, I think that'll definitely happen as we have driverless trucks because oh, yeah. I mean, rest stop towns are built off of people stopping there who will no yeah. longer be stopping there. There's, yep. there's so many different things to consider. We could go a million different ways, and that's why we have sci-fi. So yep. we have people already going a million different ways. If you yeah. wanted to leave one people with something, a call, a quote, a quote, a call to action, it could be anything before you tell them a little bit more about you and where to find you. What would it be and why? I would say that when you are writing, the advice that I, I often hear people give is, uh, you know, write the book that you want to read that, that doesn't exist. But I, I think for me, it's, it's actually write the book that you need to read, the book that helps you understand something about yourself and something about the world around you, because you are not alone in being someone who needs to understand that thing. And if you can unpack it for yourself, especially if it's something that you needed to read, like the 20-year-old you needed to read, because that's a person who's a fully formed adult. And you've got the, you've got the, the benefit of hindsight to, to share with them. That's, that's a book that's worth writing. It doesn't mean that it's a book for a young adult, right? That's not, I'm not saying, hey, go and write young adult novels. I'm th saying, use your hindsight to unpack things. And I would piggyback off of that and say, and if you're not going to write a book, do the thing in the world that you need to do, that the world needs doing, or that you feel that you have to do. Yeah. Because as long as you have a mission-oriented thing, it's generally speaking going to be good, generally speaking going to be more productive, and generally speaking be going to be better for the world. Yeah. It's like uh, on those lines, it's like, oh, I, 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 the thing that's making me feel trapped is that I, I really need uh, regularity and a sense of community. I wish there were a way to have that. It's like, well, what are the barriers to having that? And are any of the barriers something that you can overcome? 
that you can be the person who solves. Yeah, delete Facebook, come up with something else that's a little bit more social. And we are, there we go right there. Where can people find you? Speaking of Mary Robinette. The easiest thing is uh, maryrobinettekowal.com, which links to all of my things. And uh, it's, that, is, that is the easiest. Then you can sign up for my newsletter. You get to find out about classes I'm teaching. You get to find out about uh, opportunities to beta read books that I am writing. And I would say places that I'm traveling, but hey, it's the year 2020. <laughs> And we're in the yeah, middle of a pandemic. Yeah, let's get let's build some VR so I can go walk around Venice. Yes. Have some have some fun with that. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been interesting. Please do send me that 60% lung scarring thing. I want to check that out because that could be the that could be the biggest problem so far that I haven't heard about. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link. And guys, links and everything for all of our stuff will be in the show notes. And if you're interested in a dystopian book and you've got a little time on your hands because work, school, etc. is closed, mattwardwrites.com slash wolf. You can check out Synetic Wolf and the post-plague future we're headed towards. Thanks, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing the podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll see you guys again soon, hopefully. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.